Sidewalk Confessionals. My name is Caleb. My name is Jeremy. Uh, and last week, we kind of talked about gaslighting. Um, you know, we explained what gaslighting is and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but we actually mentioned in that episode that that's boring. It's really easy to tell you what gaslighting is. Uh, the real interesting part of it and the real educational part of it is to actually um, kind of investigate or, or hear about a case of gaslighting. Um, so Caleb uh, is uh, currently drinking some uh, some liquid courage right now Indeed. Uh, in the form of a Negroni, which is my favorite drink. Uh, he doesn't like it so much, but it's okay. You know, it's not so bad now. <laughs> I think it killed the first few taste buds on my tongue, and now it's like settling in pretty yeah, nice. Yeah, after you get rid of all those bitter receptors, you're you're good. Um, so yeah, um, Caleb is going to talk about. Uh, this is mostly, my confession. Most, I may not be on the sidewalk, but here it is. <laughs> yeah, mostly some of his uh, childhood traumas and and stuff like that. So. I hope you guys appreciate this because I can only imagine. Hey, let's that, rip up old psychic wounds. Yeah, I can only imagine <laughs> that this is not going to be comfortable for Caleb. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess a little bit of backstory. Um, Caleb did not always live in North Carolina, where we are now. Um, where did you like? Where did you? Where, yeah, where did you come from? Where did you come from, and why are you here? Basically, like, why did you come here? Okay, well, um, I'm originally from the suburban Philadelphia area. Not actually Philadelphia, the city. I mean, I was also in Philadelphia, the city, but I was in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, Pennsylvania, if you don't know. And um, I ended up here when I was 17 years old after a period... uh, There had been like a long, stressful, tense period at my parents' house... And then I guess they finally found out that I was gay um, through through reading my internet history and stuff like that. They found like some porn that I had watched or something like that. And then I had also found out that they had been reading. They had installed some programs on my computer to monitor everything, everything that I was doing on the internet and like log my keystrokes and everything like that. And they had been reading private conversations between me and my friends um, for months, for months. Um, and I guess that was actually something that I knew even before that incident. I guess I had known that like two years prior that that happened. We had gotten into this argument one time and they brought up things in the middle of the argument. They brought up things that I had been talking about with my friends and like started like yelling at me and accusing me of getting them in trouble. And that was like, that was pretty much when I was done with my parents. Cause that was the ultimate emotional betrayal to me to find out that they had completely invaded my privacy um but probably more on that later yeah i'm from philadelphia (laughs) and i ended up here because um i left my parents house after they found out i was gay technically i always tell the story to simplify it i always say that i was kicked out and that's not exactly what happened but basically after they found out i was gay um, they pulled me out of school. They t- shut my phone down. They took away my computer and like all of my sources of contact with the outside world. And I had already been homeschooled for like years and years and had become quite the shut in and wasn't really allowed outside very much anyway. 
So I had no contact with anyone, and I was just in the house for a week, and they pretended as if I didn't exist, and they wouldn't talk to me. And I was allowed to eat, but they would, like, sit there and eat the food and, like, pray next to me with each other, but completely act as if I wasn't there. And if I said or gestured anything, they would just, like, look right through me and pretend that I wasn't there for about a week. So finally, after about a week, um, my sister came by the house to visit, and my mom was pretending like everything was normal and um and like suddenly she was like being nice again and they didn't mention anything they hadn't told anybody they hadn't told anybody what happened so then my sister was like about to leave and she's like hey i'm going to visit grandma and i'm like oh can i come with you and she's like oh uh yeah sure i guess you can come with me if it's okay with mom and i'm like i'm going with her and she's like okay so I leave with my sister, and as soon as we're at, like out of the house on the road, I tell them everything that's happened. And my sister understands because she actually – she was kicked out of the house when she was 13 years old. For not – for rejecting religion. Right? Yeah, for rejecting religion because, I don't know, there was this boy that she liked, and she had a crush on the boy. And I don't know, she wanted to like hurt him to be her boyfriend or something like that. She wasn't allowed, you know? She wasn't allowed for religious reasons. And so she rejected religion, and then they kicked her out. It was actually really awful and traumatic. There was, like, a huge fist fight and everything and screaming oh and God. stuff being thrown around. And then and then they kicked her onto the streets. But she has a different dad, so she went and lived with him. Um, and then she didn't talk to my parents for years, but I guess about after five years, there was, like, a change of heart, and they reconciled. Um, you know? So, nice for them. But, uh, yeah. I ended up here after the leaving my parents' house because um, we went to my grandmom's house. I ended up staying with her for a few months, um, or I think it was about a month, and then she was in the middle of selling her house, and we ended up moving in with my aunt. And I was there for just a few months during the summer. And then I guess I started getting into, like, arguments with my aunt because she felt that I spent too much time on the computer and she tried to like take the computer away from me and hide it around the house and lie to me about it and she'd be like no I don't know where your computer is but really she had just taken my computer and hidden it somewhere in the house and then I found it and I'm like you put this here didn't you and she's like you spent too much time on the computer blah 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 and so then she got angry and she took me back to my parents house and and then I said there's hell there's no way I'm going back here and, you know, I wasn't in exactly a great place mentally, so in my mind, they were about to abandon me there back in my parents' house, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that my parents were going to try to, because they were very controlling people, and I knew that they weren't going to let me leave, so I went back to my bedroom, and I, like, grabbed, like, a small screwdriver, and I kept that on my pocket, because in my mind, I was like, okay, as soon as my aunt leaves, I need to escape this house, because my parents are going to try to trap me here again, and... Uh, you know, they're going to try to stop me, and I'm really small and weak, and I have no way to defend myself, so I took a screwdriver so I could, you know, stab the shit out of them and make my escape. Um, but it didn't end up happening that way, um, and instead, my aunt was arguing with my parents, and then we all ended up going to therapy together, and my therapist calmed them down, and everything was calm, and everything was good, and we went back to my aunt's house, and I was tired because it was a long, stressful day, so I went right to bed and went to sleep. And then later on, my aunt came into my room to, like, apologize to me for what had happened. And 
when she sat on my bed, like the screwdriver rolled out from under my pocket and she like woke me up and I was like still half asleep and she's like, what's this? And I'm like, oh, I grabbed that earlier. And she's like, what? And I'm like, in case I needed it. And then I like, she's like, oh, okay. And I was like, what did you come in here for? And she was like, oh, I just wanted to come in to apologize, but I see you're tired. So just go back to sleep. We'll talk more tomorrow. So I'm like, okay. And then the next day she wakes me up real early and she's like, hey, um, your therapist wants to see you again today, uh, but we don't have time to take you to the therapist because we're going to the beach. So is it okay if we drop you off at your parents' house and then they're going to take you to your therapist at the time that you're supposed to see your therapist? And I'm like, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. You know, I'll, I'll compromise. So my aunt takes me back to my parents' house and as soon as I get out of the car, like I know something's wrong because they didn't like wait for me to even get to the door. They just like screeched off as fast as possible. You could hear like rubber scraping against the... And they pull off and I get up to the door and I'm like, oh shit, what the fuck is going on? And my parents like immediately open it before I even knock and they're like, come in. And they're like, we need to talk about what's happened. And then basically they sit me down and they're like, they're like, so some information has come out and been revealed that you threatened your aunt and you were going to kill her family and we think you're going to try to kill us too and we just can't trust you anymore and no one wants to deal with you. So we don't know what to do with you, but we're going to take you and we're going to put you in this mental hospital. So they did, and they drove me like four hours into the middle of Pennsylvania, into the country, um, to some remote mental hospital, and they dropped me off there and they left me there, and that was it. And then I thought that I, it was just going to be, I was just going to be in that hospital until I turned 18, um, at which point they would release me onto the streets, and I thought that was just going to be my life. Um But what did happen was three weeks later, um, my sister showed up at the hospital. And my sister lived in North Carolina, and this is in Pennsylvania. She never called. There was no message. I had no idea she was coming or that this was happening. As far as I knew, I was just abandoned there forever. Um, But then they told me I had a visitor, and I came out, and it was my sister. And she was like, hey, I'm here to get you out of this place. And she took me, and we drove all the way to North Carolina to her apartment. And, um, yeah, that's how I ended up in North Carolina on September 3rd, 2012. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so, yeah, that's, you know, basically the story condensed. Um, I kind of want to pick apart, rewind a little bit and just pick pick apart. So we kind of mentioned religion. Okay. So kind of talk about that background with your parents. Kind of, kind of give some insight into how significant of a role that played in all of this. Well, it's actually it's basically the most vital, fundamental piece of the story. Um, I don't talk about it much anymore because, you know, I've moved past it, and it's not something that I like talking about. It's not really comfortable, but. Um, growing up, uh, in my house, we were Jehovah's Witnesses, and I don't know what you know about Jehovah's Witnesses, but you probably know them as, like, the slightly annoying but kind-hearted people who, like, knock on your doors and try to talk to you about Jesus and the Bible and stuff like that, which is true, but the real sticky is that it's, like, it's an off, 
it's a it's um kind of like a weird offshoot sect of Christianity that takes a very literal interpretation of the Bible. They have their own version of the Bible, which I'm not going to debate whether or not that version is correct or anything like that, but I will tell you that they've definitely edited certain pieces to fit their views better. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a cult, really. It's just, it's a doomsday cult. It's a doomsday cult. The big message is, you know, you must be part of this one true religion of which we are the last survivors um, because any day now, the end of the world is coming. It's soon. It's right around the corner. And you always have to be prepared for it because it could come any day, at any time. They know it's coming now, soon. could be tomorrow. And if you're not ready, that's it. That's it forever. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I realized that even after all this time, you know, the effect of your entire life constantly believing that the literal end of the world is just around the corner and it could happen at any time and you just have no idea when and having to, like, I'm not going to talk about the religion. I'm going to talk about what it, what it was like for me in my mind. And what it was like for me in my mind is that I had to be perfect, you know? I had to maintain perfect cleanliness, not just in my actions in life, but in my own mind. If you've ever read 1984, that was like the the most, that's the thing that I related the absolute most to, like considering comparing that to my own experiences, because it's just like this cult of people who all think the same and dress the same and walk the same and do the same, and you can't be out of line. There's no rules. There's no rules. There are only things that people don't do because they believe that those things are wrong. But there are no rules. There are no things that you're not allowed to do. There's only things that you don't do because you know that those things are wrong. And there's things that you don't think because you know that those things would be wrong to think. And God sees your thoughts after all. And that's the most important place that you need to be pure. Even more so than in your actions because your actions spring from your thoughts. So if you have even the slightest bad thought, you need to be on top of that shit because, you know, that's really what it's all about. It's not just being good in action. You have to have a pure heart and a pure mind, too. A, a clean conscience yields clean hands. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I know that we're about to get in this in a, into, into this in a minute, so I'm just going to start here. But, you know, like, obviously I'm gay. And this religion is, like, super anti-gay. And growing up, you know, the religion was, like, weird and annoying and stupid. And there were weird rules, like, not celebrating holidays and not doing this and not doing that. And, like, things that normal people would do. Um, but for me, I was still... And I never, like... I don't know. I'm not even going to talk about that. I was a strong believer in God. I was a faithful and steadfast believer. For me, it was a serious pursuit. Other kids, you know, their parents would bring them to meetings or church or whatever. And, you know, they would walk the walk and they would do the talk. But, you know, they were just normal kids. And they lived their lives. And they didn't really think about the deep metaphysical religious topics. They just 
listened to what they were told and lived like normal people. But for me, I was thinking about the things that I was learning and I was, it was serious for me. Like I, I, when I was eight years old, like I had this intense conversation that lasted for hours with God, dedicating my life to him and turning my entire soul over eight at eight years old, at eight years old. This was something that spontaneously came from me. This wasn't like something that my parents encouraged me to do or anything like that. You know, my parents encouraged me to pray, but this is something, this is a revelation had come to me by myself or whatever. And, um, it was, it was serious for me. It was serious for me. So I absorbed that shit really deep into my psyche. And I tried so, so hard to be correct. And it had never occurred to me once while I was growing up that I could be gay because that was something that was sinful and so wrong and so against God. Why would I choose to be so against my own creator who I love and have dedicated myself to? right? But, you know, when you're gay, you're gay, and you really can't help being gay, because it's really not a choice. And so, when you're going through, I don't know, psychological contortion to convince yourself that you're not gay, even though you're very clearly gay, you hold on to, like, a lot of shame and guilt and very strange, hard, difficult feelings. It's damaging. Yeah. <laughs> difficult, very difficult to articulate, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yes. I mean, okay. Anyone who's gay. Right. Everyone, everyone knows this feeling. Yeah. Ev anyone who's not straight mm -hmm. knows what you're feeling. Maybe not on the same level, but they know what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. All right. So... Moving on a little bit more and kind of tying it into last uh, last week's podcast, which was gaslighting. Um, and you kind of touched on this already. Mm -hmm. uh, your parents kind of, and even I didn't realize this until just now, even uh, your aunt a little bit too, hiding the laptop from you and, and yeah. telling you, you know, oh, I don't know where it is, but mostly... Your your parents. I've got this. I've got this big trigger now, and it's really just. I want to say it's like the one thing that really triggers me. Ah, triggered. Um, which is I don't like people lying to me or hiding things from me. Like, okay, if you don't want to tell me something, that's fine. Tell me. I don't want to tell you. If you don't want me to know something, if you hate me don't want me to fuck off all that's fine whatever but do not tell me a lie especially when i'm asking just tell me the truth do not tell me a lie and pretend that you are not lying yeah as soon as i discover this it will drive me up the wall and i will go so crazy and be so difficult until i can extract the truth from you and this is this is an automatic process. This will happen to anyone. This will freak out. I, I could might even it could happen anywhere. Do not tell me blatant lies <laughs> because I will find out and I will freak out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, I don't know how, how specific you're comfortable getting, but kind of some of the things that your parents would, would say or do. Okay. Um, I, I know I'd mentioned this last time. I don't think we were on the camera at the time. Um, but uh, I don't think we were, I don't think we did anything super personal last week, but like the one thing that I always try to, the one thing that really sticks out to me, this is a good example of gaslighting and lies and stuff like that. Manipulation. Manipulation. Yeah. So both my parents were really controlling. I mean, my entire life was really controlling because I was in a high control religion, a high control group um, religion that just tries very hard to control your life. Um, but my mom in particular was just like a tyrannical dictator. And her number one thing that she loved more than anything else was absolute obedience. And if you weren't obeying her to a T in the exact way that she wanted it, then there would be like repercussions and she would just come down harder and harder and worse and worse on you. And, you know, not everything that I was asked was unreasonable. Some of it was like typical parent, teenager, stupid stuff where ultimately, you know, the parent is just asking you to do something that you probably should be doing. Right. And I I like, I can't even remember most of it, but I'm not going to claim that everything that I was told to do was something horrible or something like that. But suffice to say that it got out of hand and I am a rebel and a questioner. I will do anything that you ask. All I ask is that you tell me why. Just tell me why. If you can give me an explanation for whatever the fuck it is that you want or talking about or need or whatever, I'll go along with your explanation. It doesn't matter what it is. All you need to do is give me an answer, an explanation. Tell me the truth. Give me the reason. That's my whole thing. But that's not my mom's thing. My mom's thing is you need to listen to me. You need to be obedient. Don't ask questions. Just do what I say. Do what I want. Do it now. Don't play around. You know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I want. Well, no, I don't know what you want. Tell me what you want. What is it that you want? Don't act like you don't know. Well, I don't know. So if you want it, you're going to have to tell me what it is right now or you're not going to get it. Anyway. Um, so one time I confronted her about all this bullshit and I, and she admitted, she kind of looked at me and she had like this really mischievous twinkle in her eye and she was like, I was like, you know, why are you doing this? And she's like, well, you know, I'm torturing you on purpose because I want to see if you'll be obedient to me because you have to be obedient to me, you know? And then she like quoted some Bible verse that talked about how children will be slaughtered by God if they don't obey their parents. Um, And she's like, you have to be obedient to me. And she was like, so I can tell you whatever I want. It doesn't have to be reasonable. You have to listen to me. She's like, I'm torturing you on purpose because you're not good enough. And, you know, I want to see how far I can go and you'll still obey me. Well, obviously this was really fucked up. And he's even as like a 13 year old, I knew this was really fucked up. So I was just like so done. And I don't even think I said anything to her. I think I just walked away. Um, But then like later on, I don't know, sometime later, weeks later, months later or something like that, I told my dad about it and he just didn't believe me. And he asked her about it. And naturally she was like, what? Oh 
my god, that's sick. No, I never said anything. Why would I say anything like that? Why are you making up lies about me? Mm. And I'm like... So textbook gaslighting. Yeah, textbook gaslighting. And I'm like, is this real right now? Are you really going to pretend that you did not say that to me? She's like, I... How could I possibly say something like... What? What is that? Why would I possibly say that to you? I would never do anything like that. She's like, I really don't like these these lies. This is this is new for you. you. You're getting terrible, you know, blah, 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 blah. How dare you say something like this just because you don't want to blah, 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 blah. That's a, that's like my favorite example right there. That one sticks out to me. Everything else is like neglected and repressed, but that one I still have clear memory of what it looked like and felt like and sounded like when we were having that conversation in the back of our house, in the laundry room, when she admits that she is torturing me on purpose, and she has, like, this wicked smile. She's like, I'm torturing you on purpose just to see um, if you're going to keep obeying me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this fucked up bitch. Uh, no one else ever believed me. My dad didn't believe me. Um, you know, my aunt didn't believe me. Uh, no one in my family really believes me when I tell them that they all just kind of like dismiss it or brush it off or been like, oh, you must have misunderstood or she didn't mean it that way. Uh, yeah. Uh, side note here, guys, uh, anybody who has friends or loved ones or whatever who have dealt with or are dealing with abuse, whenever that person comes up to you and tells you, hey, this happened to me, even if it sounds ridiculous, even if it's not true, you should probably still try to be supportive and at least somewhat believing of them, or at least say, okay, that sounds really ridiculous, but I believe you, or just something, anything, or like, that's hard to believe, but oh my god, wow, that's terrible. Some kind of validation, because when you have people and you're like going up to them and you're like opening up to them and telling them about these things that have happened to you, and they like minimize and dismiss it, it really is not good, and it never helps. It's degrading yeah anytime it's like well oh it can't be that bad come on it it wasn't like that oh you're gonna tell me what my experience that i actually lived through was like thanks gee thanks great i feel so much better yeah (laughs) but yeah wow who was like what do you remember like the first time you said that to someone and they believed you or at least acted like they believed you I imagine Probably. it was your sister or the the nucleus. <laughs> I mean, the, the nucleus definitely. Those are I told them, and they they believe me and everything. I think I must have told my therapist, and my therapist was probably like, "Okay, wow, yeah, I see." Um, but yeah, I can't really remember other than that. I just know that I told my dad, and no one else really believed me in my family. I don't even think my sister believed me. I love my sister, but she's not the best at being supportive (laughs) so she's actually really bad at it (laughs) really bad at it (laughs) she's really bad at it that's kind of how i ended up in this situation today with the friends i have and the life that i live is because my sister saved me from the mental hospital and she brought me down to north carolina forever grateful and appreciative of this Uh, but i only ended up living with her for like two more months because we just were like oil and water just did not get along so i ended up kind of moving out of her house into 
this crack house with people I barely knew, friends from high school. <laughs> crack house. It wasn't that bad. I can actually say that because I was there. There was no actual crack. It wasn't a crack house, okay? But it was basically a halfway house. Yeah. Basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a... Mm. Halfway house, hallway toe up. <laughs> toe up from the flow up. Poor Diana. That woman's a saint. She has so much patience. Because if I was her, I would have kicked all you motherfuckers out. (laughs) Um, so you kind of you kind of talked about this. Uh, this is the last. This is the last really kind of deeper personal question I have. Anything? Uh, Come on, really strike at the heart. I want to cry. I have to finish my Negroni. You kind of hinted at this, um, you know, lasting traumas from all of these ridiculous, frankly, experiences. Just, I mean, what are some things that are like... Oh, what are the things that stick with me? The things that stick with you, like you don't... You have a thing about people being dishonest or lying, outright lying to you. I get really triggered by lies, even when they're simple. And like, logically, I know... Because another thing that I really absorbed in my youth is I remember having a distinct conversation with my parents when I was like five years old or something like that, where they were advocating the power and the worthiness of truth and how truth is always better and honesty will set you free. And that even if I ever did something wrong, that I could come to them and tell them the truth. And I might still get in trouble, maybe, but it would be better to tell them the truth because... No matter what, the outcome when I tell the truth is always going to be better than the outcome when I lie. And lies never bring good. And that was a parental lesson plus religious lesson plus something that, I don't know, I just grew up believing that. And I still, I don't know. I'm a really honest person, uh, even when it doesn't help me. And um, I know that some level of lies is or should be okay, but... When faced with the reality, it just doesn't work out that way. It just doesn't work out that way. I just freak out. I just can't can't take lies. I can't take lies. And I'll freak out even if it was something small. Something so, so small. Like a little white lie. A friendly lie. I just don't work well with them. So that's one of the things. And then another thing I realized is that that anxiety about the end of the world is basically my anxiety I'm like I have anxiety now and it took me a while to really come to terms with the fact that what I was experiencing is for real legit anxiety because for a long time I was like okay I'm not worried because in my head I would not you know I would be given these examples it's like are you thinking about this, this, and this that's going to happen? And are you thinking, oh my God, this is going to happen. What am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. But it was never like that. I never had this internal monologue that was like, oh my God, you know, this is going to happen and everyone's going to make fun of me and everyone's going to laugh at me and blah, 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 blah. There was no internal monologue about my worries. But what I would experience is the intense physical symptoms of anxiety. Um, I think this is one that, oh no, it's so-so. Anytime that I have to, anytime that I have a scheduled event or an appointment, or in, for instance, if I have to, not here right now on the podcast, not right now, um, you know, you know, like the anxiety that you get when you go for interviews. Yeah. Well, I kind of have that 
but for maybe any kind of situation where I know I'm going to have to sit and talk with a person who is in a position of authority about something, anything. Like even um, when I was at when I was living in Amanda's house and my therapist was coming over, every time that my therapist, every day that I knew my therapist was coming, I would have immense physical anxiety. Not mental anxiety. I wasn't worried. You know, I wasn't uncomfortable in my mind, but my heart would be shaking and my body would sweat and tense up and I would pace around the room and I would feel on edge for no particular reason just because I knew that my therapist was coming and I would have to sit in front of my therapist and we were going to do therapy. And it's the same thing for job interviews or if it's like, if you say something to me like, hey, we need to talk, can we talk later? And then you go and I know that I need to talk to you at 7 o'clock. I'm going to be like sweating and shaking all day. And I'm probably going to be sitting in front of you with like a calm look on my face and calmly talking to you. I don't know. I'm a little different now. I feel like I've let go of some of this. But this is something that up until recently that is probably still active. But, you know, like – and like my my body will still be shaking. And I might actually be shaking and like have no control over it. And I'll be like, are you fine? Are you okay? Are you comfortable? And I'm like, yeah, I'm comfortable. But, you know, I'm clearly not comfortable. <laughs> but I'm comfortable. There's no worry in my mind. I never did that thing where I'm like, oh God, this is going to happen. I never had the, this internal monologue which talks to me and tells me bad things are going to happen. Instead, I just have immense feelings of physical anxiety. Yeah. Um, but that was before. I think now I've kind of realigned my physical feelings with my mental feelings somewhat. So now I do have an internal monologue that tells me horrible things are going to happen. Um. <laughs> it worked the opposite way you wanted it to. I consider this to be healthy and an improvement. <laughs> at least everything's on the same page now. Yeah, at least now I have mental access to what it is that's bothering me. Before, I had no mental access to what it is that's bothering me. It's just that sometimes some things would happen and my body would freak the fuck out. And I'm like, oh my God, why is my heart going 100 miles a minute? This is uncomfortable. I don't know why. I can't control it. But yeah, yeah. I said all that to say that growing up with the absolute knowledge that the world was about to end at any time um, and that you just had to be do everything just right, everything, especially in your own mind in order to survive this, um, leaves you with a lot of anxiety. And, you know, I'm not anxious about the end of the world. But then again, I'm anxious about the end of the world. And all the time I get this feeling like my entire world is about to be ripped apart or everything's falling apart and it's just all too much and it's too overwhelming and I can't handle it and there's nothing that I can do and my entire world is about to end. And it's like this catastrophizing, overwhelming anxiety. And that's how I like constantly feel about my life. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm okay right now, but, you know... At any minute, within the span of hours to days, every single element of my life could completely rip itself apart. And that's constant for me. And I'm like, I wonder if, I mean, it reflects the reality. Those things are true. My life could very quickly fall apart today. Very quickly. The entire thing could just be ripped apart. But it's not the actual end of the world. But in my mind, it's still the end of the world. 
And I wonder if I have a life like this, the kind of life that I do have, all because I was primed and raised and conditioned my entire life for the end of the world. So it's like I'm literally programmed to constantly exist in the state that's right before the end of the world. That's the that's what I'm conditioned to exist as, to exist in the mindset, the emotional, physical, and mental frame of being that the world is about to end. Explains a lot. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Damn. Um, okay. Uh, I just want to briefly talk, uh, touch on uh depression as a symptom of all of this stuff and then i think we're i think we'll leave it after that uh well yeah depression uh for a long time i guess i was really out of touch with my emotions and i didn't feel anything anything i mean even to the point where i thought i might have been like a sociopath i certainly acted like one you can attest to that yeah a lot yeah, um <laughs> Um, but I guess it was really just depression. And for me, the major feature of that was just like this numbness and this apathy and this gnawing boredom that never went away. And my life can still be kind of like that sometimes now. Now I have my emotions back, so now I can get happy and sad and all those other things. But I never seem to be able to regulate them correctly. They always seem to come at inappropriate times or they come, but they're just not strong enough like I'm vaguely happy or I'm vaguely sad or I know I'm happy but I just don't feel anything or I know I'm sad but I just can't be upset or oh man irritability is really something that's come out of depression for me it is so easy for me to go from calm to angry in just <laughs> seconds now and that was that surprises me because for a long time I really had my anger under control I mean, I remember now that when I was a little kid, I would have like temper tantrums and freakouts and stuff like that. Uh, but for years, I was just like a pillar of calmness and control and reservation. And now, like, I have a temper and I'm like, oh my God, where is this coming from? Oh, yeah, that's right. Irritability is one of the symptoms of depression. Yeah. My depression has gotten a lot better because now yeah, I'm not. I have noticed that it's gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like now I'm not the always numb, always gloomy person that I was, but there's still like, I don't know, it's still not normal yet. Yeah, it's still it's still there. Yeah, it's still there. And I think it's something that's always going to be there. I'm always going to be like prone to depressive states and numbness and sadness and all that kind of stuff. Depression. It just sticks with you, I yeah. guess. And I don't have to tell you why living a life of trauma and abuse would leave you with depression because you already know why living a difficult life could leave you with depression. <laughs> but that's how I experience my depression. It's like that. Yeah. All right. I think I think that's it. I think I'm done interrogating you now. Um, next week we get to do you. Yeah, next week Caleb gets to ask me questions, which actually I'm going to need your help to write my questions because I don't want to be solely responsible for asking my yeah, questions. I'll come up with some. Um, I'll do it right now. But, but yeah, I think, uh, I think that's where we're going to leave it, guys. We don't have any surprise rap or anything happy at the end of this one. We're just going to leave it at that. This Negroni is pretty happy. 
the Negroni is nice. Um, if you guys don't know, a Negroni is one part gin, uh, red vermouth, and Campari. They're bitter and they're delicious. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think that's it. Leave you guys with something not happy and something thought provoking. Hopefully, uh, we want you to think yeah. here. Think about your lives. Think, think about, about my life. Something difficult and uncomfortable because in life there are things that are difficult and uncomfortable that's never going to change and the better equipped you are to deal with those things the happier you'll be it's just plain and simple um yeah you've been listening to sidewalk confessionals happy listening and have a nice day